Hello and welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group and today I'm really excited. Today's episode is our second author episode and I'm very happy to let you know that today you'll be hearing an interview I did with Phil M. Jones all the way from New York. Now Phil M. Jones is the author of a number of bestsellers but the one we'll be talking about today is called Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. And when I reached out to Phil about the interview, I really wanted to take a leadership bent on this because obviously it's a leadership podcast. And I think you'll find that as we delve into a few of the magic words that Phil is really able to describe how they work in a leadership context and the value that they will give to you as a leader. So happy listening and we'd love to hear what you think. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Welcome, Phil, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, be a part of it. So that the listeners have a bit of an idea about uh, who you are, are you able to let everyone know who is Phil M. Jones? Well, there's a, I guess there's a long answer and a short answer, but firstly, thank you for having me on the show. Pleasure to be here. Um, Phil M. Jones is just a guy like any other normal guy who now happens to spend the bulk of his life helping leaders, entrepreneurs, business owners around the world be more influential often in the world of sales, but largely in the world of how they can persuade and move other people to be able to make action. And I've been in this game now for 20 plus years in some way, shape or form. Started in my first business when I was just 14 years of age and um, have been building out knowledge and principles and understanding from now training over 2 million sales professionals as to what it is that makes other people do stuff. Written five best-selling books on the subject, spoken in 56 countries, and then um, travel all around the world, helping people do more of the same. Fantastic. And why did you decide to write exactly what to say? Uh, exactly what to say has been a little bit of a passion project of mine for quite some time. One of the things that I've noticed through my career to date is that often the difference between those that do good and those that do somewhere like awesome is the people that do awesome are the ones that know exactly what to say, when to say, and how to make it count. They understand that words really do matter. And the one thing that we can use to drive influence or move other people to take action are the things that come out of our mouth, coupled with the fact that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the exact moment in which you're saying it. I thought it might be useful to help empower some confidence through many of the challenges that people have when they find themselves in day-to-day conversation by letting them know some of the success language that they can imply into their conversations more purposefully and get more of the results they're looking for. So before I dig into uh, going through the book in, in, in quite a bit of detail, I, I think it would be helpful for the listeners to know a little bit about your, your very first leadership role. Okay. Uh, well, I guess my first leadership role was, was probably way back with my very first business. I mentioned when I started at the age of 14, I was um, running a small car cleaning business. All I was doing was knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them quite politely whether they could be interested in having their cars washed. Some said yes and a few said no, but most just asked me how much I would charge, which I really quickly met, uh, realized that they, um, 
They were just kind of interested, providing my prices were fair. And I did okay with that little car cleaning business, so much so that by the age of 15, I was earning more money than most of my school teachers. Wasn't necessarily going to school quite as often as I should. And um, I remember getting questioned by my attendants and the school teacher would say to me, Phil, why don't you come to school? I said, sir, do you mind me asking you a question by return? He said, sure, go for it. I said, how much money are you making? Now, he refused to answer at the time, but the reason I wasn't going to school is that I had staff that needed direction. There was customers that needed servicing. There was things that needed to be done. So that was very much the first awareness I had towards being in a leadership role was running a, a small, reasonably successful business um, in, my, in my mid to late teens. Fantastic. And was there anything that really stood out for you in terms of your learnings from that role? Um, I think I've had dozens of learnings through leadership roles that I've had throughout my career. I guess one of the biggest learnings is um, don't expect somebody else to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. Coupled with the thought that if there is a behavior that you would like other people to be able to adopt, then you probably need to model that behavior first or in some way be able to articulate how that behavior is being modeled so people have something to be able to follow. That's probably one of the biggest highlights, coupled with another great point that is people will not pay more money than you ask for. So uh, just before I, I, I dig into the, the book in a little bit more detail, can you just give the, the listeners any more sort of specifics about how you work now with with leaders do you consult with them do you do private clients are you able to share a bit more there um it's kind of rare that i do private client type work nowadays much of my work is in is in the speaking and training space with large audiences yet i consult to a number of organizations in and around the globe largely looking at how they can have more effective communications in conversations specifically both internally and externally so this is about how do we package an idea with the right words around it? How do we create a movement that gets everybody to come in one kind of direction? It's probably good if I give you an example. Today I'm working with one of, uh, one of the US's big fitness brands about how they can take their people through a change. And we've got the organization that wants to do one thing. And we've got the employees that think there's something different. And I need to translate the language that sits between those two things and help be able to bring all the business initiatives and incentives together in a way that becomes an exciting piece of movement that the staff want to be able to go through. So my consulting space into leadership is, is often spent helping people sell an idea rather than sell a product or a service and sell it in a way in which everybody wins. So this means looking towards all of the stakeholder key drivers, what are the things that really move people and being able to translate an idea into a way in which everybody can see value in it. So um, I just want to read a, a little bit of an excerpt from your book, which I think is relevant, and it's from the introduction. Throughout my studies of people, human relationships, and business interactions, I've been amazed by how some people achieve dramatically different results than others with what seem to be the exact same ingredients. In businesses in which people have identical products and resources, some people struggle to find customers, and yet others cannot stop finding more success. Despite their differences in attitude and endeavor, these successful people, I've learned, have one thing in common. They know exactly what to say, how to say it, and how to make it count. This realization has had me fascinated with the difference a subtle change of words can make to the outcome of a whole conversation and has fueled my study of the precise triggers that cause a shift in a person's belief system. So that's really what the book's about, isn't it, Phil? That shift in a person's belief system. Yeah, and, and, and there's often a misconception attached to 
anything that operates within the world of influence and persuasion is that it steers towards perhaps manipulation or something that's unethical. Done right, what we have here is we have the, about, the ability to be able to move people out of that position of maybe. The real challenge that almost every business has, the real challenge that almost every leader has, is all the people that surround them that are stuck within indecision. So our ability to be able to move those people through the decision-making process freely and get them to commit fully towards an outcome is really the key that, that, that unlocks success within any given set of circumstances. And this book is a set of words that talk straight to the subconscious mind. It allows people to be able to use existing belief patterns and existing uh, almost neuroscientific triggers in order to be able to um, free up the decision-making process. So for all the listeners out there, I'm going to recommend that you, you, you go out and buy the book. I think it's a, it's a fantastic read and I, I do really like the way it's actually laid out because it's broken down into the 23 magic words. And I think it's very easy for people to, to absorb. So what I'm going to do is, is touch on just a key few words, which really stood out for me. And it, if you can uh, share a little bit more about them, Phil, that would be great. Absolutely. And, and while you're kind of digging into what those words are, you might want to jump on. I think it's important for people to know that one of the reasons that I wrote and produced the book this way around is that I learned that people in business are really good at buying books. They're just not so good at reading them. <laughs> so what I wanted to do was to, was to produce a piece of content that could be read cover to cover in maybe an hour, maybe 75 minutes. It could accompany a, uh, a long ride. It could be something that people could read on a particular train, plane, or car ride somewhere. And they could receive the content somewhere near instantaneously. No fluff, no extra padding, something that got straight towards the point and could then later be used as a reference guide. So that's why we try to make the smallest big book humanly possible. So it was full of big ideas, but concise enough for you to be able to get straight to the heart of the content without needing to get through a load of padding and story. So yeah. it's a book that's meant for people that not necessarily like reading books. Great. All right. So the first one I'd like to explore in terms of the magic words is open-minded. <laughs> I mean, um, I speak for a living. If I ask a room of a thousand people to raise their hand um, to whether they see themselves as open-minded or not, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get somewhere like the majority of the room raise their hand. There's also a good possibility that the others in the room that don't raise their hand wouldn't have raised their hand regardless of what I said. Yet what I do know is the majority of people like to see themselves as open-minded. We can use that fact in order to be able to present ideas to other people and increase our chance of somebody else accepting that idea. Simple example might well be that if I was to preface an idea I wanted somebody to be able to lean into with the words, how open-minded would you be? The likelihood of them adopting that idea and accepting it to be true or certainly giving it some airtime becomes significantly higher. If you were to lean into somebody and say, I was thinking of doing this, you might immediately get shut down. If you said, how open-minded would you be to doing this? They give you a little bit more of a window of an opportunity to explore what you might be looking at. And it allows you to be able to adopt a change maybe with some of your people. Hey, how open-minded would you be to trying it this way? Not, I think you should try it this way. Why don't you change? And it increases the adoption rate of somebody else borrowing or utilizing the idea you're presenting to them somewhere like tenfold. And I imagine that would be very, very powerful tool when any sort of leader at whatever level is really trying to think about introducing that change, being able to just preface it with that, that sort of open-minded phrase. 
so simple and same when managing up the line as well when you're speaking to maybe your boss or your shareholders or somebody else in your organization is how open-minded would you be to releasing some more budgets so we can do this job properly so the the, the next one i'd like to explore is what do you know <laughs> we often have our expertise come into question and what happens is you get other people start to come from a position of what i call an i know star it's like an i know best it's often prefaced or indicated with words like yeah but so it may come in the form of where somebody is challenging your idea so that could be something along the lines of yeah but we tried this before or yeah but so and so at xyz company is doing this that way around some form of challenge towards your belief system in a sales environment it could well be that oh so and so down the street is x amount cheaper than what you are i can use the preface to a question what do you know about to challenge the very evidence that the statement that they're making and appearing to be profound with may not necessarily have the evidence for it to stand up to be true. So what do you know about the way we do things here that is different to the guys down the street that means that our prices are slightly different? See, the second I challenge back where the other person is coming from with their strength of, uh, of statement, it becomes a lot harder for them to follow through on their argument. And it allows us the, the permission really to, to, to kind of politely say, are you sure about that? How certain are you that that is true? And the minute you can question that evidence that they're making their profound statement from, you gain the ability to then regain control in that conversation, which allows you to now hold the position of expert. And I'd imagine that would be very powerful for the leaders or listeners who have some sort of interface with customers and, and being able to challenge their customers in, in that nice way about what they do yeah. really know. Uh, so many different areas as well. And, and, and even when you're maybe new in a leadership role with a new organization is what do you know about the work that we did when I was working with so-and-so? Um, well, not a lot. It's better than you saying when I worked at so-and-so, what we did was boom, 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 boom. From a customer's point of view is, well, well, what do you understand about our returns and refund policy that we've been working for the last 23 years? It just gives you the permission to be able to insert a piece of data into a conversation that can later be used as evidence to get them to either be able to say what they know about that thing or to confirm that they don't know what that thing is and this new evidence can support the direction of the later conversation. So another one that which really stood out to me, and I think this is because uh, quite, a, quite a few of the, the leaders that we work with are probably don't see themselves as being able to paint an effective picture or, or vision for their teams, but it was uh, the words, just imagine. Yeah, sure. The mind works in, in a couple of crazy ways, but one of the ways that we have to be aware that it definitely works in is just about every conscious decision we ever make in our life has been made at least twice. First, it's made hypothetically speaking with your mind eye. And I'm sure that you've even said things to yourself. You've said things like, um, couldn't see myself doing that. So Julian, that's what you've come out with, right? I couldn't see myself doing that. Yep. When you've said those kind of words, it's a literal thing. If you cannot see yourself doing something, the chance of you doing that thing remains slim to none. So if we have the ability to get other people to see themselves doing something before we invite them to be able to do it, chances of them doing it become significantly higher. The mind and the memory is like a real-world Instagram account. It has images inserted in it, and it's those images we've seen in the past that helps us make more effective decisions in the future. We found a way of being able to create images into the minds of children 
through storytelling from an early age. We knew that if we wanted to present an idea to a child, we could preface a statement with the words once upon a time. And when they heard once upon a time, they'd sit back, kick back, lie back and think this is going to be good, right? That would happen. Yet we can't speak to adults saying the words once upon a time. Yet what we can do with adults is we can utilize the words just imagine. Now I can say just imagine X, Y, and Z, and they cannot help but see it. We need to understand this thing a little bit further. There's a word that's massively overused in the world of business, and it's certainly overused in the world of leadership, and it's that word motivation, a word that very few people truly understand what it really means. And the word derives with the etymology, the motive part of the word comes from the word motive. Another word of, um, for the word motive is the word re reason. The Asian part of the word motivation derives from the word that we know as action. If somebody's to take action, they're going to move or they're going to do something. So the word motivation really means a reason to move. Now, if the reason was big enough, then the chances are you could get just about anybody to do just about anything. Yet we need to understand other people's reasons to move. The only things that make people move is either the ability for them to become more comfortable or the ability for them to avoid discomfort. They're the only things that make people move. Which one of those two works best? Well, the ability to avoid discomfort actually is far greater at getting people to move than getting people to move towards comfort. Knowing this thing to be true, we can paint pictures in people's minds of things that they either want to move or walk towards or to move away from. See, just imagine six months on from now that you do this work, you complete this project, and then you put yourself top of the heap for the next promotion. Just imagine that were true. Just imagine you fail to complete this work, you fail to put the energy and effort into this new project, and what happens is somebody from one of the other departments does it instead, and you miss out on yet another promotion. Just imagine that were true. See, it's amazing what I can do to create motivation inside somebody else by presenting situations prefaced with the words just imagine of things that somebody might want to move towards or move away from, using it as a lever or a trigger of truth to be able to get people to do more of the things they know they're capable of doing. I imagine just in the, the example you use then that uh, for a leader who's running a team to, to use the just imagine magic words, that would be even more powerful once they had a deeper understanding of their people in their team and what, and what drove them and their, their backstory and their, their experience. Would you agree? Completely. And through a coaching tool, it can appear in a number of ways is, you know, just imagine Sandra, your wife's face when you get home and that you tell her that what you've achieved today is. Just imagine the look on your kids' faces if we deliver this kind of result and you can tell them that your bonus pays for the trip to Disneyland. See, if you know they want to go to Disneyland, you can use Just Imagine to be able to leverage them towards the thing that they've said that they wanted. So the more that you get a knowledge and understanding of your people, of the things they might want to move towards or they might want to move away from, your Just Imagine examples can become more honest, more true, and more impactful. So the next one I thought was really worth exploring for the listeners was this idea of the simple swaps. Okay. And which one do you want me to jump at first? Should we just go through them one at a time? Yes. Well, we've got a few things. It's, it's quite often we find ourselves in a dialogue and a conversation with a member of our team. And it might be a member of a team, might be a supplier, might be somebody else who's involved in your organization. We finish our conversation and the conversation concludes with a question that is something along the lines of, do you have any questions? Now, when you utilize the question, do you have any questions? 
what you're suggesting subliminally and subconsciously towards the other person is you're aware that you haven't covered all the information. You're also suggesting to them they probably should have questions, which means if they do not have questions, they're going to feel remarkably uncomfortable, perhaps even a little bit stupid. It leads to things like, I'll have a think for you, or leave it with me, or can you send me an email? It suggests that the meeting isn't over, although the meeting is over. If we swap the question, do you have any questions, to what questions do you have, then the immediate natural response is, I have no questions. If they say, I have no questions, then what it means is they made a decision, or they're clear on all the information, and everybody's on the same page, and the meeting is concluded with a final agreement towards the fact that we are all thinking the exact same thing. So there's a tiny little swap. Swap, do you have any questions to what questions do you have and watch the freedom in your conversations then play to your advantage more successfully. Second example in simple swaps is, um, is about how you ask for something from somebody else. Now, I think that much of this is to do with how we were hardwired, particularly um, as kids in the day where we used to ask for people's telephone numbers. See, if you would ask somebody, can I have your phone number? The immediate little voice inside head says, um, what do you want that for? And that you ply yourself with some resistance. Instead of me saying, can I have your, if I just say, what's your, what's your best number to call you on? You find yourself with a complete freedom of return phrase by just mouthing the number. And it's amazing what you can get people to be able to share with you when you say, what is your versus can I have your, and, um, and how much of that frees up conversation, adds more, more, more momentum, less resistance to, uh, to get the kind of outcomes and the answers you're looking for. Fantastic. There's, there's one that really stood out for me, which since I finished reading the book, I've actually started to use a little bit in some of my uh, outbound conversations, and it's uh, a bit, you're a bit like me. Yeah. It's a beautiful tool to get just about anybody to agree to just about anything, providing you're reasonable. See, people like to be liked. People like to be commonality. We like to feel like we are cut from the same kind of cloth, that we have things in common. This is even more apparent when you're speaking to a stranger than it is when you're speaking to somebody who knows you well. But if I preface an idea with the words, I bet you're a bit like me, then the almost obvious response is, well, yeah, sure. See, I bet you're a bit like me, get home from work and enjoy nothing more than grabbing a beer from the fridge, sitting down with your kids. Easier to say yes to that, right? Yeah. I bet you're a bit like me and you're often looking for ways to be able to progress your career and see what you can do to deliver more for the company. Yeah, yeah, that's me. See how that preface there in that scenario is an easy thing to get agreement for or evidence for before you ask them to do a task that might be outside the scope of their work. And I think that one in particular really has a lot of leadership applications in terms of really aligning your team to yourself as a leader and aligning them to achieve what you want them to achieve. Well, and not only necessarily what you want them to achieve, but you are, you are outwardly role modeling. What you're saying here is that I see the best in you because the best in you is what I see of me. What you're also doing is you're saying these are qualities that I admire in you as an individual. And the reason I admire these qualities in you as an individual is I share the same value towards these qualities. And I'd like to believe that these qualities exist in me too. So it becomes a great way of, of winning empathy and trust with another person, particularly when what you do is you pick an example of something that you believe to be true. You cannot just pick anything you want to be true and preface it with the words, I bet you're a bit like me and hope that it's going to work out. 
you need to be reasonable with what your request is and reasonable with what your statement is. But yet what it can do is it can provide a coherent piece of evidence that everybody's in agreement with that you can then anchor that evidence for your later ask, request, action, or thing that you want to drive towards. Do you find that these magic words, there's a difference in their level of impact in terms of whether it's face-to-face or over the phone or via email? Do you find there's a, a difference there? Uh, there's differences everywhere and there's differences in, in nuances and skill and confidence and positivity and experience and circumstance and what somebody had for dinner that morning and what kind of mood they're in and which way the weather is blowing and all of those things can impact upon the success and the effectiveness of any form of conversation. Yet what I would say is that these are meant as conversational triggers. So that means that they work in all forms of communication where a conversation is happening not necessarily a broadcast. So they need to be momental. They need to be very much in that precise moment in time for them to be able to trigger the immediate response to go, yeah, yeah, that's right, that works. That means that face-to-face, they work best. Telephone, they work just about the same. It does mean that they can work well over things like Facebook Messenger or um, via WhatsApp chat or text message. They can also work as email subject lines and they can work within conversational style of emails. But what I wouldn't encourage anybody to do is to take the success language that's talked about and exactly what to say and translate it into their next company briefing and ensure that every word is mentioned and expect it to be able to hit the jackpot. There needs to be a level here of the fact that this is authentic, it's real, and it sits and suits those kind of circumstances. Which I think leads me towards a really important point when it comes down to difficult conversations is that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. Yet so many of our conversations are predictable. There's a pattern that exists. There is a repetitive nature of what exists. And what I would urge many leaders to do that are listening to this presentation or this podcast right now is to think about those regular routine conversations Because for many of those regular and routine conversations, they have paper-based or electronic documents to be able to support them, templated and formatted physical documents to be able to support those conversations. Yet they haven't gone to the same degree of saying, what's the right thing that should be coming out of my mouth to support this conversation? And if they just gave that a little extra thought, there's a good possibility they'll have more meaningful conversations, which will lead to more meaningful relationships, which will lead to more Uh, meaningful opportunities, which will lead to way much more meaningful success. You mentioned a word before about confidence, and I think that's a a key thing which which leaders need to display. Over over in Australia, we have this thing called tall poppy syndrome. Yep. uh, Which really challenges a lot of leaders to actually display that they're good at something or they're confident about something because they're worried about being perceived as arrogant or being being shot down. So do you think confidence is, is really important when it comes to someone who's thinking about trying to test out a few of these magic words? Where confidence comes from is it comes from experience. Confidence isn't fake it till you make it or try and turn up with something more than what you are. And there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. I think there's a hard line between those two things. And what tall poppy syndrome relates towards is, is people that, behave and respond with a level of arrogance. If I'm looking to be led, I want my leader to be confident. I also want my leader to be confident in trying new things. 
which means that they openly lean in and try something they haven't tried before and see what they're prepared to be able to learn from it. I want people to be able to step where other people haven't stepped. So what would I ask people to do with things like these word choices is back to the point that I made when we very much started this conversation today is be prepared to model the behavior. It may be that you pick up the book, you think about some circumstances that relate towards your organization. You go have a go, you try it once and it works out fine. You try it twice, it works out better. You try it a third time, it doesn't work out that time, but you try it four, five, six, seven, eight, nine more times and in and amongst it, you found a way that works better than the way it used to. You then decide to share with confidence of, hey, I've gathered this experience from trying something different. You might want to try it this way too. But know that confidence cannot come without experience. And as a leader, what you cannot be expected to do is to know all the answers to all the problems when many of the problems don't even, haven't even existed yet. And that when you find yourself facing them, that's the first time anybody's faced that problem. You just need to be prepared to lean in and give it a go. Yeah, I think you raise a, a really, really good point there about the, the confidence and the, and, the, and the have a go because I, I really do encourage the leaders that we work with to not just accept things as they are and to, to try new things and to try new ideas. I mean, there's no right way or wrong way of doing anything. And so many leaders want to try and get towards what's the best practice or what's the ideal way of being able to do something. And experience tells us enough that they're really are dozens of ways that you can achieve success and dozens of ways you can get towards the right kind of results. Our key is to be able to encourage people to find their way, not the way, and be brave enough to allow yourself to be teachable by both your peers, by your leaders, by the people that are around you, and say what we're really looking for is, is a way of being able to solve X or Y with the resources that we have that's available to us. And leadership is about saying, yes, I'm brave enough to try, it's also about sharing your experience where your experience has happened and saying last time we tried something similar to this, this is what we learned, but it's not having that I know best mentality. It's about saying that we've been in situations like this before and this is what we experienced last time. So what is it that might make this time more effective? And this comes down to controlling conversations. If we want to be a more effective leader, we have to understand who's in control of any given conversation. And the person who's in control of any given conversation is the person who's asking the questions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So the next one I'm curious to explore, the magic words, is most people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we often find people stuck in indecision, not knowing what to do. When people are stuck in indecision, not knowing what to do, and you feel like you know better, Sometimes you find yourself wanting to tell those people what to do, but you can't tell people what to do because that would be rude. So we find ourselves in a paradox. Adding to this paradox is the fact that people don't like to be told what to do, but they do like to be led. People don't like to tell people what to do, but they do like to lead. That's a confusing riddle if you're going to try and work that one out. Then we add to that same piece too is that people take great safety in numbers. They take huge confidence from the fact that people like them have done things in the past and it worked out just fine for them. That's the same reason why we believe reviews on Yelp over anything our mother-in-law might say, because it's that safety in numbers type piece. We can take all of that psychology and wrap it up together by talking in terms of most people. See, when I talk to somebody in terms of what most people would do, little voice inside head kicks up and says, aha, I'm most people. So that's what I should do too. See, if I say what most people would do in your circumstances, 
What I've really done is I've told you what to do, but I haven't told you what to do. I've left enough room in that statement for you to be able to choose it. You didn't feel forced into it. You just got told what most people would do. You step towards the thing that most people would do. And why would you step towards the thing that most people would do? Because people like you have done things like you before that because most people would do it. It has that safety in numbers, that collective responsibility, all wrapped up into two simple words. Possibly the most powerful two words in the book are the words most people. And most people would use the words most people to be able to get more people to do more of the things they'd like them to. So I imagine this would be very useful for leaders who, a team member, someone comes up to them and isn't sure about the decision they need to make or isn't sure how to approach a particular topic and then most people comes into play then. Yeah, it comes into play then. And also we can can play with it. What we're really looking at is, is the quantifiable number of most. And we could then lean towards, well, what most people would do in your circumstances is, or it could be, well, most times we've been faced with something similar. What the majority of people have gone on to be able to find is what we're looking to be able to do is to create this ambiguity of saying it's down to you to choose. But here, based on experience, is what people like you in your situation have done in the past that worked out just fine. It gives you a confident way of being able to say to somebody what I think you should do is without you sounding pushy or arrogant or telly and giving you the freedom of the fact that if it doesn't work out, you didn't absolutely say it would. You just said that this might be where you want to go look. You mentioned uh, that in the book that uh, these two words are probably the most responsible for a lot of your negotiating success. Are there any of the, the, the magic words which you think where someone should start? If they want to really start to build their ability to, to influence, are there any that you think they should start with? I think the biggest things that people can start with is almost where we started in the interview today. It's, it's picking up that phrase open-minded. It's looking at where you can have conversation starters to start introducing your ideas more effectively into conversation. It's not about necessarily the words in which you start with, though. It might be the situations in which you start. Now, none of these words are restricted to be used purely in the workplace, purely when you're leading people. You can use them at home with your loved ones. I got a great testimonial in the other day from somebody about the book. who said, hey, Phil, I loved your book. I was using the words, how open-minded would you be, in order to get my husband to take the trash out. <laughs> and guess what? It worked, right? So that kind of stuff I love. And we find ourselves in conversations every day. We think we have no influence, yet in truth, We have influence over almost every conversation we find ourselves in. We just choose not to use it. So my encouragement would be to leaders is is pick up the book, have fun, think about how they relate to your scenarios, consider the examples that are laid out in the book, and think how can you create some of your own that you could use as early as today, tomorrow, the day after, based on the circumstances that you have that are immediately in front of you in your life. It's not pick up this word and try and force that word into your conversations. It's think about the situations that you're definitely going to be faced with and could any of these words act like tools to allow you to be able to have more effectiveness when you are toe-to-toe with somebody else? I think your use of the words tools is is really important because it is really about equipping leaders with, with more tools so they can lead more effectively. And vocabulary is one of the most powerful tools that we have to influence other people to do stuff yet get significantly overlooked in almost every leadership program, every sales program, every business development program. Very rare does anybody take the time to sit down and say, yeah, but what do I exactly say? And how important is it that I get the exact words right? 
So just uh, just a couple more of the magic words I, I'd like to explore, Phil. What happens next? Yeah, um, often a conversation will happen between a number of people. We get to the end of a conversation, and then it gets left a little bit open-ended. It can be things like, great, I'll send you an email. It can be things like, okay, all right, yeah. We've all been in those conversations, right? Where an important conversation, important statements, important things needed to be discussed. We've got to the awards, the end of the discussion, and we don't know what happens next. So what we need to have is a what happens next based conversation. So once you've got to the end, what happens next can now become punctuation towards the opening of a new chapter. So what happens next from here is you're going to go out and you're going to try these new skills that we've talked about today. We're going to get together again in seven days on from now, learn from the experience of you trying your new skills and seeing what you've learned through the experience, plus what we're going to need to do next to continually further your development. That's what's going to happen next. Okay, what happens next is that you're going to do the PowerPoint presentation, have that ready by Thursday. And what I'm going to do is that I'm going to prepare the speech information that we're going to be sharing with the board. And Sandra's going to be ensuring that everybody's got the invites to make sure that they're at the right place at the right time. That's what's happening next. You see how what it becomes is it becomes a way of being able to move a conversation from fact-finding towards decision-making with the agreement of all parties involved purely by taking leadership of what happens next. And I think it also very much translates into tasks as well for, for yeah. leaders when they're needing people to, to do things. It's sometimes people leave those meetings and thinking, well, who's doing what? And I think that this can really impact leaders in that they're, they're setting the tasks out for everyone by using that language. Yep. And it can be used as a leading statement where you say what happens next is, and you're going to perhaps either summarize what's been agreed within the meeting, or you're going to lay out and give direction towards what's going to come next. Or it can be utilized as a question. So you can come to the conclusion of a conversation and say, right, so what happens next? And put the ownership back on the other people for them to be able to step up and define what those next steps are. The purpose of this, though, is to define and agree exactly what's going to happen following the discussion we just had. Yeah. And once again, as a leadership tool, it really supports the idea of getting everyone aligned and focused on the same outcome. You got it. So just two more I want to explore, but this one is probably my personal favourite because inadvertently I started using this in my very first leadership role about 20 odd years ago. And so when I read it here, I thought, yes, I was doing something right all the way down. <laughs> Probably the only thing I was doing right, but it's the, uh, the words, a favor. Yeah. 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 And, and I think even in, in British English and, and Australian English, the, the, this can have even more power than it has in the United States where I live right now. And I find it fascinating that in and amongst a room full of trusted people, the request of a favor can get a unanimous yes back in the other direction without the other person even understanding what's going to be asked of them. And that can become a remarkably powerful tool to be able to get more from others. See, it's funny, right? I say you couldn't do me a small favor. You would say yes to me right now. Well, that means you've given me unconditional agreement to do whatever on earth I ask. What else can you do to get somebody to give you unquestionable agreement towards doing a task without even knowing what that task might be? And I think this is where there is huge power to be able to get more from others. There's times, though, in which you can ask for it. 
And timing is probably the most critical part. You can't just run into a group full of strangers and say, could you do me a favor and expect to get the right kind of outcomes. But the ideal timing of where to use the word favor is in moments when other people feel indebted to you. Now, there are lots of moments when other people feel indebted. I mean, Julian, tell me, how do you feel in yourself when you are a touch indebted? Do you feel like you might want to do something to be able to appease that feeling and do something for the other person if you feel indebted to them? Absolutely. So that is a fact of life. Is like good people like to help other good people. There is a sign that we give out when we feel indebted. When we feel indebted, we often say the words thank you or we show gratitude or appreciation in some way. See, when somebody says the words thank you to you, your immediate thought might well be to pat yourself on the back and tell yourself you've done a wonderful job. What I'm asking people to think differently is when somebody says the words thank you to you, think, aha, they feel like they must owe me. Here's the chance for me to be able to ask for something. Let me ask in a conditional way first. And the conditional way we're going to ask first is, could you do me a small favor? Now everybody says yes. Now you can put yourself into a position where you can ask somebody to do a little bit extra. You can ask them to introduce you into somebody else. You can ask them to open a door for you. You can ask them to be able to do any of the bonus things that you've been looking for somebody to be able to support your endeavors with, with the guaranteed certainty, you know, they want to be able to help you. It's a great tool. I remember I had a counterpart who had a very different approach to me in speaking uh, with people that reported to us. And the, uh, the, that term, could you do me a favour, just seemed to really uh, deliver me a, a very different result to the way he used to do it. So final one, just out of curiosity. <laughs> um there are a number of times we find ourselves wanting to ask rude, direct, perhaps even obnoxious questions to other people. Maybe you're inviting somebody to be able to step up into taking a new role within the organization, a promotion, or to take on additional responsibility. Or maybe what you're doing is you're asking a supplier to make a change or an adjustment towards some pricing or some changes in terms and conditions. And you're receiving the kind of pushback of things like, okay, I just need some time to think about it. And internally, what you're thinking is, um, what is it? Like, what is it you need to think about? Like, if you tell me, we can probably talk it through and I can probably help. But you can't say that because that would be rude and obnoxious and you're not rude and obnoxious, right? We find ourselves wanting to be able to ask very direct, very plain questions of people. Yet because we're kind, warm and friendly people, we stay quiet. Instead, we say things like, I'll leave it with you. We're ready when you're ready. (laughs) <laughs> now, this used to drive me crazy. And I thought, I've got to find a way to be able to ask rude and obnoxious questions without sounding rude or obnoxious. And I learned that if I preface a direct question with the words just out of curiosity, not only can I ask whatever on earth I like, what else I can do is I can turn rude or obnoxious into soft and fluffy. I could say things like just out of curiosity, what is it specifically you need some time to think about? Then I could zip it, remain silent. The other person would then need to give me the truth in their answer and we could do something with the truth in their answer to be able to progress the conversation and make something happen. Because when somebody would say things like, I need some time to think about it, I know that nine times out of 10, they're not going to think about it. They're just pushing this decision out away to another day because they haven't got themselves into a position that they can contemplate that decision. Powerful. A wonderful tool. 
to be able to ask you to, to allow you to, to create reason. See, what we're looking for is we're looking for the ability to have permission to ask. The curiosity in that phrasing of that statement is what provides the permission. Just out of curiosity, what is it that you need to think about? The curiosity provided the reason. If I just said, what do you need to think about? I'm aggressive. If I say, look, just out of curiosity, what is it that you need to think about? I'm using the curiosity as the fuel. And the beautiful thing about curiosity is it gives you the ability to fuel just about any given question. Because what's wrong with being curious? Powerful stuff, Phil. I did want to uh, ask one more question, which is probably more a bit of a personal one. Are you... you planning to come out to Australia at all? Um, I love Australia. I think it's a beautiful place. I've been out and worked there a couple of times. And my books and my audio books do really well there and um, would like to spend more time. All I guess I'm waiting for is an invitation. So if anyone <laughs> listening in has a company that requires an event, is looking for opportunities for me to come out and share more of this material within their organization, then by all means, there's no restrictions to me coming to Australia. I just don't have anything currently planned on the schedule in the next six or eight months. For me, to, uh, for me to get across, but I do have uh, some good clients and good friends across some various areas of Australia and don't need many excuses to come out and spend some time. And if it wants to be Sydney on the beach, then, uh, then all the better. <laughs> and so if people want to know more about uh, you, Phil, where should we direct them? Come via the website. It's philmjones.com. You'll find out more of the kind of services that I provide. Yet not only that is you'll find links out to all of the social channels from there. And if you want to plug in and find out more about what it is that we're up to, then um, check me out on Twitter or come via LinkedIn, come stop and say hi. I love hearing about where people have put these things into practice and got some results. So tell me not that I was great or that you enjoyed the interview. Come tell me, hey, I took this thing from the interview. I put it into practice and it worked. That's the stuff that I love to be able to hear about. So join in the conversation there. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. No worries. Thanks so much, Phil. All the best. Great to be here. Thanks again. Cheers, guys. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.